Hi, this is Dr. Charlie W. Starr, author of The Lion's Country. You're listening to Pints with Jack. The benefits to be derived from serious and sustained attention to Barfield's work extend far beyond merely academic concerns. And moreover, do not depend upon one's acceptance of all or even most of his conclusions. C.S. Lewis, for instance, serves as a near-perfect model of a largely unconvinced man who, nevertheless, benefited immensely from a lifetime of critical engagement with Barfield's ideas. We believe that Barfield's star is on the ascendant, and a proper appraisal of his work is only just beginning. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 43. What Barfield Thought. After Hours with Landon Lofton and Dr. Max Leif. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. Back in Season 4, we had Barfield Month, several weeks devoted to Owen Barfield, a man who had a huge impact on C.S. Lewis. And today's opening quotation comes from What Barfield Thought, an introduction to the work of Owen Barfield, which is a new book from two scholars, Landon Lofton and Max Leif, who appeared on our Barfield Buffet back in April of 2021. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing the book with its authors and hopefully introducing many listeners to the life and thought of Owen Barfield. As I said, I'm joined today by Landon Lofton and Max Leif. Landon Lofton is a husband, father of two. He teaches for Gravitas, a global extension of the Stony Brook School. And Max Leif is a certified rolfer, philosopher, and anthroposopher from Anchorage, Alaska. He blogs at Theoria Press and is the author of The Redemption of Thinking. But of course, they are both authors of What Barfield Thought, an introduction to the work of Owen Barfield. Landon and Max, welcome back to Binds with Jack. Thanks for having us, David. Well, it's so good to have you guys back on the show. So aside from writing this book, and by the way, well done on that, this has been a hole in the market forever. Uh, when people have asked me, where do I begin with Barfield? I just apologize to them and tell them that they're just going to have to tackle him on his own terms. Uh, but aside from writing this book, what have you two been up to since you were last on the show? Well, I'm actually the father of three now, as of this year, as you noted, being a father of two. Oh, wow. Well done. <laughs> My third child, Leo, was born this year. So that's pretty much kept me busy. That and working on my PhD and teaching consumes pretty much all my time. <laughs> How about you, Max? Well, it's funny to think, uh, Landon, like any one of those things that you mentioned could be a full-time job. So you really have your, your hands full. You know, I've been, uh, had the pleasure to, to work with Landon together on this uh, publication since the last time we talked. Um, I think maybe it was just only, you know, we'd only maybe conceived of, conceived of it at that time. Since then, a couple other things come to mind. I've, uh, I celebrated 10 years of rolfing practice. So that's been a big part of my life. I've been teaching as an adjunct at the university up here. I was able to secure a more, uh, more full time teaching position starting in September. So I was really pleased about that. And, uh, and then I got engaged to a beautiful girl. So I'm also, uh, very pleased about that. Congratulations. Thanks, David. So today I'm actually enjoying a water because my son woke me up for about two hours last night. So I'm all caffeinated out. So I need to rehydrate. Uh, are you two drinking anything? I've got a pumpkin ale. Oh, lovely. I uh, might be drinking beer only that it's, uh, it's nine o'clock up here in Alaska. <laughs> and so I, uh, I said it was some coffee. Yes. Cheers. Well, as I said, I think this has been a much needed introduction to Barfield's work. And one thing I particularly loved about this book is the way the book is structured with each chapter building on the ones that went before. Because when you first try and wrestle with Barfield, there's just like a lot coming at you at once. Uh, but before we talk about the book in more detail, I only gave brief bios for each of you. So would you both mind just telling our listeners a little bit more about yourselves? I was basically uh, born in Alaska 34 years ago. I've had the pleasure to travel, uh, you know, Quite extensively, even you know, I've I've lived in uh, actually Sweden a couple times, uh, Brazil, Boulder, Colorado, San Francisco, California. In a certain way, like I think many people will probably understand this sort of like tacit way that all of your prior experiences, you're always bringing them to bear on your present work. Um, and so, so I really feel you know, for example, the just the work with with Landon on this book, uh, I'm drawing from from all those different periods in my life. I think. That's probably what I would say. I uh, was born here uh, and um, I, I've returned now and I have the pleasure to be able to have found a place where I can um, 
you know, like set to work in a way that, that I feel contributes to, uh, to the, the common good. You know, in my own way, I, I do that through rolfing practice, uh, and through, um, through teaching at the university, among other things. <laughs> well, before we get to Landon, it, we're recording this at the end of June. Isn't it basically 24 hours of sunshine now in Anchorage? Oh, yeah. I mean, we wish, but this, this is a challenging, uh, challenging time for all of us. And that's quite a sensitive subject. David, because uh, last summer, um, you know, just by, uh, I guess, contingencies of the weather patterns, um, it was around this time that we actually, like, the sun went away virtually for good. And we had just, just like, I mean, with a handful of exceptions, rain every single day until the point of snow. And then we just had a winter. So, it went straight into winter from about July 5th last year. Ugh. And um, we're still trying to make our way out of that same winter. And so, I mean, this morning, it was 49 degrees here. Uh, overcast, drizzling a little bit. And so at this point, uh, I mean, people like me who's quite sensitive to the sun and really tries to take in all that, you know, get it while I can. I'm starting to feel like a, like a plant left in the basement to wither. And so, uh, so, so sorry to lay it all on you, but that's just how it is up here. So it's like, it's, it's light all day, but in, in overcast conditions, it's basically just like gray the whole day. I love Alaska. And so I don't mean to complain or like, like, uh, you know, denigrate this beautiful place, but that's just uh, the nature of things at this point. <laughs> well, I live in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I think it's beautiful, but our winters are pretty harsh. And my wife and I have just decided that means it's time for a quick trip to San Diego or somewhere with a little bit more sun. So maybe, maybe time to get away. So, Landon, what about you? Yeah, well, like I said, I stay pretty busy as a husband and father and now teacher. I used to be a hospital chaplain. And before that, my wife and I assisted another couple in founding a home for trafficked girls in Ghana, uh, but that goes on without us and they don't need our help. So we moved back here and in my spare time, apart from my studies, I like to take long walks and play musical instruments, of various kinds. Um, I've been learning the bagpipes over the last two years and that's been fun. Oh, wow. So is your wife a very patient lady then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the kids like it. So that, that get, that's a plus. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, let's talk about your background with Barfield. How did you each come across him and what made you make him uh, an area of study? Landon, if, if you could kick us off. Yeah. So for me, it started with my master's thesis on C.S. Lewis's understanding of the imagination, the role it plays in theology and apologetics. And in the course of my research, I learned that Lewis's understanding of the imagination was forged in the fire of his arguments with this man, Owen Barfield. And of course, if you read Lewis, you're sort of bombarded with these almost over-the-top compliments of this, this man, this genius, Owen Barfield. <laughs> so my interest was piqued. I picked up Poetic Diction, which is the Barfield book that had the most influence on the Inklings, particularly Lewis and Tolkien. And I remember reading the introduction, closing the book, calling my friends and canceling my weekend plans because I'd I was intent on using my time to finish the book. <laughs> and since then, I've been reading and rereading Barfield books. Um, and I, I did recognize that an introduction was needed. Barfield can be difficult, but it's worth the effort. Absolutely. Max, how about yourself? Yeah, Landon and I have actually had the occasion to talk this over uh, a number of different times. Like, it's quite funny. My introduction to Barfield was almost the reverse image, like a negative image of of Landon's and, and I really, you know, f from my perspective, it was perfectly ordinary. Uh, but I realized that for my own like path to Barfield was a little bit unconventional. Barfield is often thought of as like, as Landon mentioned, a difficult thinker, sometimes even thought of as like a, a gateway drug actually to Rudolf Steiner. Mm -hmm. Ironically, for me, the, the, the path to Barfield was actually from Steiner. My first encounter was with Steiner. And, um, and I had experience comparable to what Landon described of um, the way I would say it, the way I would put it is I first encountered Steiner and there were like two simultaneous epiphanies that I had. One is that there's clearly something, something of substance being said here. Uh, that was the first thing. The second thing was like, I clearly don't understand what this thing of substance is. <laughs> that intrigued me. And, um, and, and so, and I just, I kind of resolved, like, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to stay with it. Um, when I, you know, not so long after that encountered Barfield, it was such a delight to encounter Barfield because of his articulate, uh, eloquent and poetic quality of his language. He has such a gift of, you know, conveying these, these concepts that are admittedly, um, not easily grasped. 
they can be challenging and difficult. Barfield had such a fluency with conveying them in a way that's at least um, at least makes it possible for people. And so, uh, for me, Barfield really um, it almost felt like um, the way a, a river river will naturally flow downhill. Barfield felt like such a relief in a certain way. Um, and uh, and to this day, I mean, I just I, I reserve such such high regard for Barfield's um, linguistic and poetic abilities. It's um, it's really a pleasure to to read him. I ended up, you know, writing in my dissertation uh, about Goethe, uh, Barfield, and Steiner. And so the, the, those three figures played an important role in my academic life. Hmm. So how did the two of you come together to write your book? Uh, Landon, would you like to start? Well, I came to know Max because Owen A. Barfield, grandson and trustee of the literary estate, sent us both an email and said, hey, you two should know each other. <laughs> and so I added him on Facebook and as I became more and more interested in Barfield and more and more interested in writing a book about Barfield, um, I realized that I was coming to Barfield from a very particular angle, as Max has already intimated, that I've, I'm a lifelong lover of Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings. And I, I came to Barfield from that direction. And there's an important aspect of Barfield that was still opaque to me. Mm. And it's the part that people who come to Barfield through Steiner tend to understand better. <laughs> and I realized that Max is a better writer than me, and he knows that aspect of Barfield. So I should commandeer him to help me with this project. And he agreed. And that's how we got going. <laughs> I think Landon did a pretty good job, um, you know, laying out the, this kind of like historical data here. And so I'll just use my response time to say, um, you know, how just immensely grateful I am that, that Landon took that initiative and, um, and also just say what a pleasure it was to work with him. I think it's from Lewis who said, makes this comment. He talks about like, uh, there's a friend who you disagree about the answer to every question, but you agree on the questions. And that itself is, is maybe the most powerful thing. Um, and so I don't want to imply that Landon and I really disagree, but I really feel like we both immediately recognize like our shared deep concern and, and appreciation and, and interest for not only Barfield himself, really, but but like sharing actually the questions that Barfield asked. And um, it might, you know, we maybe happen to agree with a lot of his, his, his answers to them, but that's even, that's not even the most important thing. It's really, it feels like um, kind of participating or almost a kind of communion in this shared, shared interest. Yeah, I just would reiterate um, what a pleasure it was to work with Landon, probably because we do bring such different different elements to the table, you know, there's no reason that should be a source of conflict, but quite, you know, quite to the contrary. Hmm. You're alluding there to Surprised by Joy. It's in chapter eight. Lewis writes this. He has read all the right books, but has got the wrong thing out of everyone. It is as if he spoke your language, but mispronounced it. How can he be so nearly right and yet invariably just not right? <laughs> he is as fascinating and infuriating as a woman. <laughs> well, you begin your book with a chapter describing the life of Owen Barfield, his beliefs and his interaction with the Inklings. So can you just give us a bit of a Barfield 101? What do people really need to know about his life and beliefs? Well, Barfield's life is interesting to me, but one thing that Barfield was very clear about, especially toward the end of his life, is that he didn't want people to be too interested in the details of his life because he thought they might be a distraction from the ideas that he thought were so desperately needed in the world today. And so he much preferred that his ideas spread rather than his reputation grow. Uh, nevertheless, for somebody like me, I'm always interested in the people who I think have lived, uh, lived well and who have sought wisdom and tried to confer that in one way or another. And I count Barfield among those. So, you know, without saying too much about his life, I think listeners of this podcast will mostly be interested in his involvement with the Inklings and we argue that though many people have tried to maybe marginalize the importance of Barfield to the Inklings as a whole, because it is true, he wasn't able to attend regularly to their meetings and that sort of thing. His ideas, especially the ones expressed in poetic diction, are foundational to, let's say, the common spirit of the Inklings. A lot of the shared assumptions and things that united the group amidst their many disagreements are, I think, most easily traceable to Barfield. And so he's foundational in that respect. But in our book, we tried to acknowledge that importance and also the importance that Barfield played in the realm of anthroposophy, which is the spiritual and intellectual movement inspired by Rudolf Steiner. 
But we wanted to treat Barfield on his own terms, not as an adjunct to the Inklings or to Anthroposophy or anything like that. And uh, so we didn't we didn't dwell too much on all that. In a certain way, we took Barfield's uh, like the, the the template or the lead that he set in his own inquiry into Coleridge's thought. That's you know where we derived our title. In fact, Barfield has a monograph on on Coleridge titled "What Coleridge Thought." And um, you know, as we were sort of juggling around different possibilities for a title, uh, that's the one that came with us. And so. Barefoot, I think, spends virtually no time on bi- biographical details of Coleridge. And once again, I'm really grateful to Landon for Landon really took the lead on that part because I often when people ask me about myself, even in the scholarly context, my mind just kind of goes blank. It seems like it's a different <laughs> part of my part of my brain, maybe that I would use. And so we really we try to balance those two those two interests. Um, but again, really trying to take the lead from Barfield and and again, though, also feeling as though the two of us are working on Barfield. But also with Barfield, in a sense. Uh, Barfield has a great, great quote. He says, for ignorance plus the love of truth is already wisdom. This is like, you know, hearkening back to Plato and Socrates and the idea of like, knowledge of ignorance is the beginning of wisdom, kind of like the maxim of Platonic philosophy. He says, for learning plus the love of truth is already wisdom, and learning without it, still folly. Also, if I, if I may, I just want to add as a adjunct to what quote that you found, David, in Surprised by Joy, this is actually from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. He says, the man who agrees with us that some question, little regarded by others, is of great importance can be our friend. He need not agree with us about the answer. Um, and so once again, I feel there's this possibility for um, community and communion uh, around questions, irrespective of the answers that we come to. And we feel we're collaborating on something common. And funnily enough, as you were talking a moment ago, I was thinking of another passage in The Four Loves where he speaks about friendship, about that when you're interested in common ideas, you actually don't care so much about the personal details. It's one of the more controversial things that Lewis says, or at least it's controversial to modern ears, the idea that you can be friends because you care about the same thing, but details of your wife, your children, your job, all this other stuff is kind of unimportant. And so it's kind of funny to see that replayed in Barfield's own opinion of his of his life in comparison to the ideas that he was actually interested in. I really feel both sides of it because part of me is just like naturally inclined that way. And, and I have many friends that I, I actually virtually know nothing about their personal lives, but I actually consider them like very dear, dear, uh, dear friends. It's, it's kind of funny when I occasionally have guy nights here with my brothers-in-law, I'll come back at the end of the night and my wife will say, oh, how's so-and-so? How's the issue with such and such? And it's just like, <laughs> we didn't talk about it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, no idea. idea. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we've got a little bit about the man himself and some important ideas. Let's uh, let's dig into the big major idea uh, that was sort of my my first real foothold into Barfield, uh, and that's the question of language. Because anyone who's read Barfield will immediately realise that language was crucially important to him, and that's the subject of the next chapter in your book. So, what was Barfield's understanding of language? And what was the reason for its importance? Yeah, so language, especially the history of language, was one of Barfield's earliest and most enduring interests. And the reason for this interest is that he believed that language studied historically could provide insight into the changing consciousness of humanity. And this is pretty well summarized in a passage from History in English Words, and I'll just read it since I have it in front of me. Says, in our own language alone, not to speak of its many companions, the past history of humanity is spread out in an imperishable map, just as the history of the mineral earth lies embedded in the layers of its outer crust. But there is a difference between the record of the rocks and the secrets which are hidden in language. Whereas the former can only give us knowledge of outward, dead things, such as forgotten seas and bodily shapes of prehistoric animals and primitive men, language is preserved for us. The inner living history of man's soul. It reveals the evolution of consciousness. Hmm. So that, in a paragraph, is why Barfield was interested in language. (laughs) And we will talk a little bit about the evolution of consciousness in a moment. Uh, But that idea of language, that really sort of came through to me when I read Mark Vernon's book about hidden Christianity. And he was looking at how the language of the Old Testament, as you move through into the New Testament, how you can start seeing new ideas about God come through. Now, quite how you pass that out in terms of direct revelation or other things actually happening in humanity, that's not so much important. But that gave me a very clear model to see what Barfield was actually talking about. 
Yeah. And we would just want to emphasize, I think, that it's not just about changing ideas, but language reveals the changing consciousness. And consciousness mm. is like the soil within which ideas can grow. That's the difficulty, I think, in understanding what does Barfield mean by consciousness? And we try to address that in the introduction of the book. One thing about language is, um, in a way, words seem like, you know, discrete. But in another way, they're definitely not. Rather, every word kind of participates in an entire ecology of meaning. Uh, we would call that maybe like a paradigm or worldview. David, this also touches on, you know, what you said about how language, you know, over the development and evolution of Christianity, language came to mean new things. Like, um, I mean, great example is the word agape, right? The way Paul used agape, it's very different than, than Plato, for instance. And so, you know, Barfield really picks up on this. And with language, again, we're not just, it's one thing to study like a fossil record. Uh, you're studying, you are just study, studying discrete objects and trying to make inferences about them. With language, um, it's, you know, it's analogous to that in some ways, but like every analogy, there are, are also like dis relevant disanalogies. And so in, in, in other ways, it's very different. I think it's also just as important to recognize the ways it's similar. It's also important to recognize the ways in which studying language diverges from the study of something like a fossil record. One of the reasons that I mentioned that the sort of ecology, um, but it's like words are, they're like the currency of, of meaning, the currency of ideas for us. There's a, a great quote from, from Emerson. I mean, I think it leaves like quite an illustrative image. He says, um, he's talking, he's not talking about words here. He's talking about material objects. He says, material objects are necessarily kinds of scoriae of the substantial thoughts of the creator, which must always preserve an exact relation to their first origin. In other words, visible nature must have a spiritual and moral side. So he's talking about material objects, obviously, but, but I think at least for me, part of what I had to overcome, I guess, in, in working through Steiner's anthroposophical views together with Barfield's views on the evolution of consciousness is, um, the sort of like disjunction where we think of the world as one way. And then, you know, the human, human domain is something totally different. Language is one way and material nature is some very different way. My impression at this point is that's self-evidently not true. And the way, way we perceive objects in nature is perfectly comparable to the way that we perceive meaning in a text. And when you, for instance, just grasp any material object, like a spoon or a tree, um, you, you have to actually see through, I don't know, whether you break it down into discrete percepts or discrete atoms or discrete sensations or whatever, you have to be able to read through to the wholeness of the phenomenon through the, the way it necessarily, it's like sensory perception necessarily effaces that wholeness. And it's up to us in a certain way, like through participation to actually reconstitute you don't see a tree with your eyes, really. You see through your eyes, but you have to grasp the tree with your, you know, intelligence. And so when Emerson writes this about material objects, he's talking about material objects, but he's not only talking about material objects, he's also talking about language. And I imagine the way language, um, it provides us this unique insight into what is otherwise like such an ephemeral and virtually inaccessible thing to us, which is the consciousness of our ancient forebears. Like how do you, we can't just like get them here and interview them on, you know, on Pines with Jack, obviously. So what do we do? You don't, but the, the point is like, we don't actually have to just throw up our hands. We can like infer their states of consciousness if we know how to look. And Barfield, I think, just, you know, lent us those, that way of seeing. And the idea is like, you have to use your imagination. Imagine you've set up a long exposure camera uh, outside um, on the beach somewhere. You wouldn't grasp actually people or, or, or creatures moving by what you would see, beach isn't maybe the best example, but I think you maybe like in a field of, of mud or something, the camera would be able to, with long exposure, would be able to grasp the footprints, but not the beings who were stamping those footprints. Mm -hmm. If you follow my analogy, language is like the footprints. But we, with our imagination, we can actually grasp that those footprints didn't just show up by themselves. They were stamped by activity and movement of consciousness. So just to, to draw this to a close about language and, and Barfield's views, there are two, uh, what are to my mind, like just exquisite uh, statements from Barfield uh, in respect to language. In the first, he calls language um, flashing iridescent shapes like flames, ever flickering vestiges of the slowly evolving consciousness beneath them. I really think this is one of the most beautiful passages in the English language. People can uh, debate me about that, but this is the final paragraph in uh, Poetic Diction. I think um, many, many people already know this one. He says, over the perpetual evolution of human consciousness, which is stamping itself upon the transformation of language, the spirit of poetry hovers, forever unable to alight. 
It is only when we are lifted above the transformation so that we behold it as present movement, that our startled souls feel the little pat and the throbbing feathery warmth which tell us that she has perched. It is only when we have risen from beholding the creature into beholding creation that our mortality catches for a moment the music of the turning spheres. Well, speaking of poetry, many of the Inklings loved poetry, but it had a special place in Barfield's understanding of the world and language. How would you describe it? Yeah, so according to Barfield, poetry can serve not only as a source of pleasure, many of us know that if we've read poetry, but also the source of a particular kind of wisdom. And it's a wisdom that follows from an experience, the experience that he described as a felt change of consciousness. I think many people who have really tried to read poetry openly and receptively know this experience. It's not just like gaining some kind of information or seeing um, some words set out in a pretty way. It's, it's a felt change of consciousness, a holistic shift in our relation to the world. And that's significant because people who've experienced this felt change of consciousness are then in a position to understand something of what it means for consciousness to change and are therefore in a much better position to recognize the changes that Barfield labored to show in the history of language and literature that constitute his theory, the evolution of consciousness. So again, he always comes back to this idea, everything, almost everything Barfield wrote centered around it. You know, he, he wanted to understand the history of the human mind and in a deeper way than those who limited that to the history of ideas. There is something about language that I think we need to understand to, to get the basics of what Barfield thought is going on when people experience this felt change of consciousness. And it's what, according to Lewis, Tolkien called Barfield's theory of ancient semantic unity. Mm. Uh, so the idea in particular, it, it really profoundly affected some of the inklings. And in fact, Lewis provides the most terse summary of the idea and I, I have that passage here. And this is from Miracles, I believe. Lewis says, Mr. Barfield has shown, as regards the history of language, that words did not start by referring merely to physical objects and then get extended by metaphor to refer to emotions, mental states, and the like. On the contrary, what we now call the literal and metaphorical meanings have both been disengaged by analysis from an ancient unity of meaning, which was neither and both. And in the same way, the ancients could not have started with something material, for material as we understand it comes to be realized only by contrast to the immaterial, and the two sides of the contrast grow at the same speed. So in other words, what Lewis is saying is that Barfield, looking into the history of language, saw that the meanings which have been torn apart across history were at one time unified. And Barfield's favorite example of this is the meanings of uh, words that we might now translate from ancient Greek or many other la ancient languages to, depending on their context, either something like spirit or soul, and in another context, uh, breath or wind. And so some people think by projecting modern consciousness onto ancient people, they think that, oh, they were just using the word for breath or wind metaphorically to express this idea that they had about a, a spirit or a soul within a human being. But in fact, Barfield says, no, there was one unified meaning that's been broken apart in the course of consciousness evolution. And as it's been broken apart, um, we've become, become unable to see the sort of spiritual resonance of the material world, which is something Max alluded to earlier. Well, to bring it back to poetry, poetry, which you know relies on metaphor, that's the most important part of poetic language is, is metaphor, not verse or rhyme or anything like that. It's metaphor. And metaphors are sort of consciously reuniting these concepts that have been torn apart, right? So when we use a metaphor, like if we used breath or wind to talk about the soul, we would be reuniting something in our consciousness that has been severed across the course of history. And that felt change of consciousness is the experience of seeing the world uh, maybe as people before us saw it. And that's part of the power of poetry. Barfield writes uh, in Poetic Diction, the, he writes a um, beautiful metaphor, the world, like Dionysus, is torn to pieces by pure intellect. But the poet is Zeus. He has swallowed the heart of the world 
and he can reproduce it as a living body. Barfield, I feel, was especially uh, cognizant of the ability of, of poetry to almost like lay bare these almost spiritual ligaments that, that join together what seems to us as this just, you know, infinitely differentiated and, and um, fragmented uh, world that confronts us. Um, and he, I think he even quotes Shelley, something to the effect of um, poetry lays bare the hitherto unapprehended relations of things, the hitherto unapprehended relations of things. The meaning of poetry and the experience of poetry doesn't just lend itself to you without you also lending yourself to it. Like you have to become involved and participate in the, like it's, it's, you're not just reading an instruction manual or something. Like you have to also be present there, not just with your like discursive intellect, but with your feeling and uh, your whole soul. And the moment we do that though, once again, we have, it's like the words are, they're the terminus of something that is higher and, and prior to those words of like the spiritual meaning that, that, you know, ultimate, again, the way the metaphor of like how a being um, stamps footprints into the earth. So in the same way, you, you start to actually like take part in those um, immaterial meanings that ultimately gave, gave rise to those words as, as termini of their action. Hmm. Now, we've mentioned evolution of consciousness several times. So maybe now we should perhaps try and define it, explain what it is. And also, I think what it isn't. Because to uninitiated modern ears, I think it can evoke some very different ideas. What did Barfield mean by it? Yeah, I think that's a good intuition, David. Like, as we're talking about poetry, we're naturally just kind of dovetailing into that. It's virtually impossible to talk about Barfield's view of, of, uh, of poetry without simultaneously talking about his view of the evolution of consciousness. And that's one of the things that right from the very beginning, I just, um, I so deeply appreciate about Barfield is he doesn't, it's, I mean, it's so tempting to have these like, in Barfield's terms, watertight compartments and the way we relate to different phenomena in the world. And, and um, one thing I, um, I always respected about Barfield is his continual striving not to do that, <laughs> to like achieve, to attain to like an integral, integrated view of, of how things, all things hang together. You know, Landon already gave us like quite a helpful foothold into understanding what the evolution of consciousness is and, and by the same token, what it's not. Um, probably calls to mind in a lot of people, I don't know, like dropping acid and, and going on some kind of shamanic journey or something, the evolution of God. I don't know. What, what what do you think it means to people? I think definitely down that uh, that line of thinking. It's funny, actually, I just watched the Jesus Revolution movie and it was you know, scenes during the 60s and 70s and I had to explain to my wife, oh yeah, it, this was during this time people thought, oh, we take acid and it expands our consciousness and this is the next step in human perception of the world. So I, I think certainly that is is an idea that kicks in. Various sort of adjacent New Age ideas also, um, I think it evokes in people. Uh, but what would you definitely say it isn't? I think when people hear the term evolution of consciousness, that they have a hard time understanding the word evolution except for in very reductionistic biological terms. And so mm. they might think that Barfield is advocating a view that in fact he takes great pains to rebut which is this view that consciousness is somehow the product of biological evolution and that, you know, we can explain certain phenomena of our own experience in reductive biological terms. So that's, I think, in my experience, the, the wrong idea that people get, that there's all kinds of wrong ideas that people can get if they don't do the hard work of, you know, working through his books. But we gave a very provisional summary in the introduction of our book of what the evolution of consciousness means, and then we spend most of the rest of the book unpacking it. But I can read that here. We say the evolution of consciousness is a theory that posits a process of fundamental change in relation between the human mind and the material world, affecting not only how people have perceived and understood the world, but also the fundamental character of that which is perceived, that is the world itself. And this change involves, among other things, a movement from the conscious participation in the life of nature that's characteristic of pre-modern consciousness to the self-conscious observation of nature that characterizes modern consciousness. So there's a lot there, but it's this idea of a form of consciousness that Barfield describes as participation and uh, it's slowly changing into a self-consciousness that characterizes modernity. And self-consciousness is a gift. Barfield doesn't think it's a bad thing, but we've attained it at a great price and he hopes that we'll go on to use it in order to recover much that we've lost in the process of gaining the self-consciousness and the sort of spiritual freedom that comes with it. 
I'd like to elaborate a little bit, if I if I may, by uh, actually hearkening back to uh, an example that that Landon already furnished us with, and then also to provide another one, and then try to use those as analogies to shed light on on Barfield's idea of the evolution of consciousness. The first one is what Landon gave about the Greek word pneuma, uh, and the manner in which pneuma can be translated in a variety of different ways in English: um, wind, spirit, breath, mind, even soul, maybe. In order to understand what the, that ancient semantic unity really means, you can't seek for the correct answer among one of those like discrete definitions that we would give it today. What Panama meant is no single one of those things, but somehow, axiomatically, contained every one of those things in potential, like in a state of potential. It's like it's pregnant with each of those meanings, but it's not reducible to any single one of them. And so that's the first image or analog I'd like to set up. And the second one is, is harkening back to Genesis 2, when Eve is created on the side of Adam. For the first time, suddenly we can say Adam is a man and Eve is, is a woman in the way that is intelligible to us now, prior to Eve having been created out of Adam's side. And we still see a vestige of this, certainly in, in German and, and to some extent English, although there's like controversy, controversy around this, the way that man is like a non-gendered word. Uh, Adam before the creation of Eve out of his side is not the same as Adam after the creation out of Eve's side. Why? Because Adam after the creation of Eve out of his side is uh, exclusively a man without, let me turn it around and say, Adam prior to the creation of Eve out of his side was a man, but not in the sense that we're familiar with today. It's a man, but also, you know, also bearing in potential everything that we know as woman today. In the same way that Panoma it bears in potential everything that we know as breath, wind, spirit, uh, mind, and so on today. It's kind of like an imaginative ascent uh, to arrive at more comprehensive and integral meanings of terms. So again, um, if we think about Adam before the creation of Eve, Adam also entailed everything that would later become Eve. When we think about our consciousness today, everyone somehow, without necessarily being able to define it in really, really sharp and, and crisp terms, everyone knows what it means by having like an inner life or an inner world. We have like a psyche, there's the psyche, the inner world, and then there's the external material world that scientists study and, and tell us about. And as Landon uh, alluded to, kind of the standard scientific paradigm today will tell us that everything about our inner lives is purely explicable in terms of evolutionary psychology and the way it converts survival utility onto our distant forebears and somehow having all of the, you know, rational and, and emotional faculties that we do today, it's somehow okay, like increase the genetic fitness of our ancestors or something. But in axiomatically, everything about our inner life is, uh, is reduced to evolution of, of, you know, the, the outer world. In Barfield's view, that's committing the same fallacy as imagining that, uh, that for instance, you, you could, among the diversity of words that are, for which we can today translate Panoma, that you could find one single one that was the correct one and discard all the other ones. Mm. It's committing the same fallacy to imagine that that Adam, subsequent to Eve having separated from his side, is the same as Adam before Eve emerging from his side. We have to imagine in that case, so so then to, to, to talk about evolution of consciousness, we have to actually imaginatively consider a state in which the world, so so when we trace trace back into history, we have to imagine a state not in which the inner world emerged from the external world that we're familiar with today. Definitely not. Rather, we have to imagine a state prior to the polarization between inner and outer that is familiar to us today. So whether we call that inner world, outer world, subject, object, and Barfield says definitely not. Like if you go back, if you really want to go back in time, you have to imagine a state prior to that kind of differentiation. In, in other words, the world in the past before the emergence of subjectivity out of the objective world was not just the objective world. It was a world that was both subject and object, objective, and hence neither exclusively one nor the other. I'd like to give one actually anecdote. Um, my, my brother recently defended uh, for his master's uh, dissertation. He's uh, advocating for increasing like education uh, in nature, like outdoor education, kind of exposure of elementary school kids to the natural environment. He told a story, an anecdote about how he took, in the same way that people people tap maple trees for uh, to make maple syrup, people uh, tap birch trees to make birch syrup. Uh, he was teaching his kids how to do that. They went out in, from their school about uh, a quarter of a mile, traveled to a grove of birches, and they were preparing to tap the birch tree. And my brother said, "Wait, hold on. We should make sure that it's that we're not just like violating the tree. We should look for some kind of sign from nature." 
And at that moment, he turned and saw a, like a pearl of uh, birch nectar dripping from a, a branch that a moose had eaten off. And he took that as a sign and he showed it to the kids and he was, he was just like thrilled. He's like, how cool, you know, how cool that all this is coming together. It's like a sort of, what's well, an extraordinary moment, like a sacred moment almost. And he describes being a little bit sort of like a let down that the kids, like they, they just, they didn't even care. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and I thought that was so illustrative because what it shows is probably our best method of trying to grasp the evolution of consciousness is to try to grasp how it was to be children. And for these children, what they demonstrate in that anecdote is that for children, this sort of dichotomy that we're familiar with between the ordinary and the extraordinary, the mundane and the sacred, even like science and, and, and spirituality or science and religion, that's like familiar to us. But if we try to imagine that that's also familiar to kids, that's, that's definitely a mistake. That's an anachronism. Like for children, they actually don't exist in that dichotomy between ordinary and extraordinary. For them, everything, you can't say everything is extraordinary, really. It's neither one nor the other. It's, they haven't been polarized in that way. Life hasn't been polarized into the sacred and the, um, the, the mundane. It hasn't been polarized into spirituality and, and you know, just, just ordinary life. Uh, so I hope, you know, through those, that sort of like litany of, of uh, examples, kind of like a rhapsody, I hope that it served to, to illustrate Barfield's concept of the evolution of consciousness. Hmm. Yeah. But we've now got to move on from talking about the evolution of consciousness to the culmination of this evolution, final participation. What is it and what would the world look like when it's achieved? I think we have already like all of the pieces on the table and now it's just a question of us putting them together. Uh, Landon talked about the, like, the emergence of the self. I use the word subjectivity. They're maybe not identical, but they're certainly related. Over the course of this polarization into like the inner world and the outer world, the sacred and the mundane, um, subject and object. Um, something has been, been created. There's something that wasn't present at the beginning that is now present. Uh, and that's this like self-consciousness and this center of agency. It's extraordinary, really, just kind of meditation. If you think about, you know, how the, the manner by which the universe marches forward and unfolds through time, evolves through time, you really like objectively think about this. You realize that decisions you make are actually decisions that you are making on behalf of the universe in your little corner of it. And so we have these centers of intensified consciousness and subjectivity. And that's, that's what we recognize when you look at somebody's eyes and you see that light behind their eyes. It's been like a painful generation, but it's something that's been created over the course of the evolution of consciousness. And final participation means, um, in a certain way, reclaiming the relationships that have been lost to us. Barfield, as, as we already uh, indicated, like tells us that poetry is one of the most um, effective means of doing that. Like beginning to grasp those those unapprehended relations of things, beginning to see the you know the wholeness of of the world and of nature. But nevertheless, without without losing this pearl of great price that has been you know forged through this process, which is which is the self, we're able to say I. We're able to conceive of ourselves as centers of, of, you know, initiative and spiritual agency. And the idea is like, without losing that, can we also um, enter back into a kind of community with the rest of creation? To stick with the analogy that Max already brought forward, that the evolution of consciousness is somehow analogous to a person growing up in childhood, there's a, a certain lack of awareness of distinctions that we might make and that we are in such a habit of making, it's hard to unmake them. It's hard to see the world without those distinctions acting as filters through which we perceive it. Uh, but final participation, essentially Barfield's asking us, grow up, but maintain childlikeness. You know, my own kids, I don't want them to be childish forever. It's good right now because they're children but I want them to grow up. I want them to become mature. I want them to gain a sense of self and, you know, to become self-conscious as it were, uh, self-conscious, freely acting moral beings doing something intentional in the world, using their life in, in some way that's worthwhile. Yet um, I don't want them to become adults in the sense that many adults become as they, they lose that uh, childlikeness. There's a difference between childishness and childlikeness. Certainly, yeah. And it's the childlikeness that we want to recover. So I think David Bentley Hart defined wisdom as the recovery of innocence at the far end of experience. 
if we take that and put it on a, a grand scale of the history of human consciousness, that's what Barfield's asking us to do when he speaks of final participation. But it's it's to maintain what we've gained, that sense of self, that self-consciousness, but also recover that ability to uh, to perceive the spiritual resonance of the world around us, to participate in the life of nature, that sort of thing. I don't know if this is such a grave mistake as the ones that we've laid out before, a mistake in the, like mistaken conception of what evolution means, but people often imagine that like, you know, evolution is from the lower to the higher. They often import this sort of like moralistic value judgment onto it and think like, oh, you're saying that, that like, I don't know, for instance, if you think of the evolution from a child to an adult, oh, you're saying that adults are better, or you're saying that primitive people were inferior to uh, modern people. No, nobody's saying that. If you really like consider this, Landon already alluded to this point. Like, we, there's so many things that when we look at a child, we have this sense of like how much has been lost actually in the course of this evolution, and it's perfectly analogous when we think back to primitive people. And so it's not a value judgment in saying, oh, the higher is better in some way. We're saying it's different. Some people have have these like subjective preferences, but we don't think like the autumn is superior to the summer or the spring. <laughs> we recognize that they belong together. And that's another way of, you know, maybe the best way of, of conceiving the evolution of consciousness is just to think like time is not this like abstract linear march on like a Euclidean axis or something. There's a wholeness to it. It's like a seasonality to everything a season. Um, there are seasons of, of history. Uh, and human consciousness is not some other thing that's separate from that progression of seasons. It's rather integral to it. Um, I'll just conclude with, uh, I think, probably what comes to everyone's mind, at least tacitly, is um, Jesus' statement, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Well, your final chapter is, I'd describe it as the application of Barfield to today's world. And it's entitled Science, Technology, and the Crisis of Meaning. And I think, given everything that we've said thus far, listeners can imagine how you guys approach that question. Since we're a little short on time, I'm just going just gonna to leave that there. It was probably my favorite chapter, and it really puts everything together. If people have been wondering where we're going, I've already found your, your book. It reached its apex at that point because you suddenly saw, or at least I suddenly saw, why Barfield is important. So you can respond to that a little bit if you like. But my main final question then is, what do you see as the future of Barfieldian studies in the 21st century? Are there any particular of his books or ideas which you think are going to be explored further by scholars and, and mined for gold? I think that Barfield's work is just you know a, a clear weeded bed of fertile soil ready for people to, to plant seeds. And you know, there's just been this torrent of attention to like Lewis and Tolkien, as I mentioned earlier. But uh, it's it's a little puzzling. There are reasons, but it's a little puzzling as to to why Barfield's been comparatively neglected. But I think he'll be discovered more and more. I think that's already happening and will continue. Um, in particular, I think people are going to see that all this stuff about the evolution of consciousness is not just abstract theorizing. It actually can help us understand intimately the most vexed problems of human life in the modern world. And so you alluded to our, our final chapter, and that's one example of how we can make sense of our own lives by understanding the big picture of what that Barfield painted of the evolution of human consciousness. And the basic idea in that chapter was that our ability to perceive meaning in nature is inversely proportional to our ability to manipulate it for our own purposes. Hmm. That's a, a difficult truth, but I think the more one looks at it, the more convincing the thesis is, and that we see the world as a collection of inert objects to be manipulated and moved and used according to our purposes. But that that leaves us in great spiritual poverty. It might give us some material conveniences. And explaining why we feel the way that we do about the world around us, it was immensely helpful to me. And, and indeed, it led to me to sort of like a spiritual renewal. I realized that the fact that I don't see the significance of the things around me, that the world does appear to me as a collection of inert objects, 
um, is a contingent feature of my own consciousness, which I've inherited through my language and culture, and that it doesn't have to be that way, and it hasn't always been that way, and that there are ways of recovering uh, that that sense of the the wholeness and the beauty and the spiritual resonance of the of the world. And I would suggest to listeners. It's a very interesting thought exercise to apply everything that's been said in this interview to the book that we've been doing this season, Out of the Silent Planet. Look at the way Ransom, Western and Divine perceive the world and the difference that that makes to everything. We've recently finished Narnia Month and in Narnia Month, we were reading through The Magician's Nephew and there's that classic line that what you see and hear very much depends on where you're standing and also the sort of person that you are. I would even go so far as to suggest that all of what we've been doing this season has all been about perception. And that has a very strong bridge to these ideas of consciousness that we've been talking about today. William Blake kind of paraphrases it, draws it all together in a letter to uh, Reverend Trussler, I think it is. He says, um, as a man is, so he sees. I love uh, Lennon's point about how the evolution of consciousness, as, as you really work with it and engage with it, it ceases to be like some abstract theory and it becomes almost like something self-evident, not even something that you argue your way to, um, but rather something that, that you, um, you begin to perceive. And that's what we've tried to do in our book is like progressively lead the reader to, to a vision of, uh, of the evolution of consciousness and, you know, a vision of what is possible for us going forward. I would just, um, I would just say my impression is, um, this immensely fertile grove or soil or whatever the metaphor would be that is like you know very difficult uh like not always accessible to english readers but it's um rudolf steiner's work and i really feel and i think barfield thought of himself as this way and as sort of like a forerunner uh, barfield thought of himself as like um you know he's often perceived as barfield's writing for the longest time and this is what Leonard and i were kind of trying to remedy it's thought of as like the voice of one crying in the wilderness or something like that and we tried to show no uh this is what it means and this is what it prophesies well, Landon Lofton, Dr. Max Leif, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. As the landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find out more about each of you? And of course, pick up a copy of your book, What Barfield Thought. Sure. Well, I don't have any significant online presence and I keep it that way on purpose. <laughs> so uh, read my book if you are interested. Our book, I should say. I do try to keep up a um, online presence, uh, most concentrate on my blog that, that David already mentioned. It's a Substack. Um, it's Theoria Press, theoriapress.substack.com. And so if anyone wants to uh, follow my work and engage with me, um, that's probably the best place to do it. Wonderful. Thanks again to Landon and Max for coming on the show. Thanks to our audio engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to all of you for listening, particularly our Patreon supporters and our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, Matt3, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for you all every week and all of the requests in our prayer channel on Slack. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And the next time you meet a Lewis nerd, ask them what they know about Barfield. And please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>